0: more creative. I'm your host, Ashley Wiley, and today we talk with Stacy Barton, a show writer, experience designer, and award-winning author. For 20 years, Stacy has specialized in story development for themed experiences, including major projects for Disney, SeaWorld, Ringling Brothers, DreamVision, and others around the world. We talk about her acting experiences, her start in show writing, her process for creating immersive experiences, and more. I hope you all enjoy this one. Stacey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. So I just want to jump right in and understand a little bit more about you when you were younger. So when you were a kid, what did you think that you wanted to do when you grew up?
1: Well, to be perfectly honest, I remember being about seven years old and crying because I was sure that all the first had been taken. I wanted to be the first something. I wanted to be the first woman something, the first amazing something. I don't know that I really thought too too much. I just always was creative. Um, I wrote stories and made little sculptures out of clay. Um, my dad was an advertiser. My mother was a ballerina. And so um, her mother was a, also a dancer My uncle was a Juilliard pianist, and I guess the arts, I just never thought I wouldn't be in the arts.
0: That is so fascinating, because typically you hear it the other way around, where everyone comes from a family that is very commercially focused, and and the standard jobs, and then you have one that is kind of in the middle, but that's so fascinating that really your whole family has, has been involved in the arts and creative fields. It's funny. It's, I just sort of stepped into it at an early age.
1: And when my, I have four children that are grown and when they wanted to get into the arts, it never occurred to me to, to dissuade them. And it was really, has been watching them launch their careers, realizing, oh, I guess this is kind of
0: hard. It just, it kind of came quickly to me, I guess. You ended up leaving home at 19 to join the S.A.K. Theater. Can you tell me about that experience? Sure.
1: So it's called S.A.C. S.A.C. Theater. Um, It is spelled like that, S.A.K. And it comes from a sack of costume pieces that we would pull from to pull people out of the audience to be the stars of the show. So if we did Romeo and Juliet, Romeo was somebody's grandpa, and Juliet was somebody's grandma, and we pulled them up to tell a love story. So that's where SAC Theater comes from, and I joined them at Epcot. They were actually um, hired by Gene Columbus back in the day to open Epcot in 1982. I came in 1984. And at the time, I found out about them. I thought they were fantastic. And I, not knowing any better, Drove to Florida in my 1961 VW Bug with 150 bucks and three paper bags of belongings, a place to stay for 10 days, and an audition.
0: Wow. I mean, what a (laughs) chance to take. Well, I guess I figured I could always
1: drive home if it didn't work out, but I got hired and um, worked with that company at Epcot until... That contract got uh, they were let go, they continued the the show via Disney channels without a contract group.
0: so what was it like working on shows at Epcot?
1: Oh, it was a delight it
0: was It was audience
1: participatory street theater, so uh, we we made a show out of nothing. there would be no one there, and then we would put down what we called our row rags and encourage people to come up and stand and just interacted with them, made them feel like they were the party, really, and then pulled people up from the audience. It was really, truly, you know, the origins of interactive theater back in the day.
0: Was it all improv, or did you all have an idea of what type of show you wanted to put on before you went out there? We
1: definitely had a structure. So we had, like, Romeo and Juliet is the easiest one to explain. So we knew that we had to pick a Romeo and Juliet, And a Mercutio and a Tybalt. And there was a person who told the story. And then the messengers were the people kind of on the ground that would pull the people up out of the audience or get them to boo or cheer. And uh, so we had a structure that we knew where we were going, but it changed dramatically depending on the audience. You know, if we had a couple hundred people and they were just loving it and the weather was nice, we could go on for 45 minutes. But if it was in the middle of the summer in Florida, you know, in the middle of the piazza in Italy in Epcot um and there were you know fifteen people that were brave enough to stand not in the shade. You know the show might be twelve minutes long.
0: <laughs> that is really cool, and what a unique thing! I've never even heard about a show like that before. that'd still be fun to participate in today for sure
1: yes they they are still around a bit. they were very popular in the eighties, and um I think not, not so much now, although they really are magical. if You have the right setting for them. Renaissance festivals is kind of the origin um, of SAC and many others like
0: it. So when you left the SAC Theater, what were you wanting to do next? I was having children. Oh, nice. I spent the, <laughs> I spent the
1: 90s having four babies. Wow. So
0: um,
1: the 80s were with SAC and the 90s were having babies, and then I started – Writing at the end of the 90s um, for small organizations and then started working after that at Disney. So I was busy having babies at home.
0: Well, that's awesome. And how did the opportunity at Disney come about? Well, I had been teaching dance to little ones, little
1: three to six year old girls, and I was hit by a Mack truck in my car and had sustained, yeah, I sustained some injuries, not like horrible hospitalization or anything like that but I had herniated discs and TMJ and um, it just was difficult to teach little bitty ones ballet and so I was like well I guess I'm gonna have to go back to performing which was very hard with four children and some friends of mine were in town writing for Disney that I'd been in SAC theater with and I was like well I want to do that my girlfriend said well call call someone up and so I called up someone that I knew and said hey, I want to write. Do you have any need for writers? And she said, well, we're looking for one right now. She said, call this person at nine tomorrow. And I called them and they said, can you come in at four? And I went in at four and at 4.45, I had an open-ended contract to write for Disney Entertainment. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. I know, isn't it funny? It was actually through Disney Event Group, which is the special event arm of Walt Disney World. That's where that's those are the people that immediately employed me. But at that time, I worked also for main gate, which is the entertainment sector of Walt Disney World. And so I worked for both because they didn't have any other writers at that time. Uh, Since then, they have, I think, two full time writers and a couple of interns. I always wanted to stay contract because of raising a family. And also, um, I also write literature. So I, I wanted to have the freedom to be contract. So. That's kind of how that went down.
0: So what do you do as a writer? What did at that time being a writer for Disney entail?
1: Well, like I said, I did a lot of work with a special event group, and that was often a lot of treatments. So you're pitching a story idea or a show idea. So you have to write a narrative treatment that kind of explains what the guest will go through. And that served me well when other companies would call me you know, to be a part of their shows and experiences or theme parks in like Dubai and other other parks in the States. So that's kind of like what Imagineering does as well. But as a writer for themed entertainment, for me anyway, I really am the the story driver. I'm not the only one on the team, of course, there's quite a large team usually. But in terms of what is the story, what's the experience, what's the emotional ride we're taking the audience on and so I sit at the table with the visual artists and the musicians and the director and the producer and customers and set designers and animators if it's a film and and we come up with what is that story and then I'm tasked to put it on paper to kind of give us a road map and then some things have uh, scripts you know if it's a show on the castle stage or something like that it will have a script and some things are experiences that might not have very much scripting that needs to be done but i'm very busy all along the way crafting and recap crafting and rewriting the narrative treatment for whatever the experience that the audience is on what visuals they see what they hear and feel so it's it's a lot like storytelling Almost more than script writing, the majority of what I do.
0: So does this apply to anything from like like a, a parade to like a ride queue or everything in between? Or is it pretty consistently something like a theater show or anything like that?
1: You're really spot on that it's kind of the gamut. At Disney, I have not been involved in crafting rides or attractions. That's done by the Disney Imagineering team. But for some other companies I have done, I did a dome theater and yes, parades, a certain type of character meet and greet that's maybe integrating the environment. Wow. Um, Water shows, fireworks. I mean, those all have stories, believe it or not, and and often some voiceover to link the music together. Pretty much any any experience in a, a theme park or a resort or a themed restaurant, those all have stories behind them that a lot of writing goes into that you would never necessarily hear a voice speak or see written down anywhere, but there's a lot of writing behind the scenes.
0: I never would have thought that something like hearing people's voices or maybe listening to the type of music or ambient sound that's playing at the same time would be so important, but I mean, it makes sense that it's there to create a completely immersive experience, but I had no idea that it would be such an important part of writing. That's really cool.
1: Yes. It's, it's probably my favorite thing because if we go back to what we talked at at the very beginning, my experience in SAC theater and doing audience improv I learned to cut my teeth on the audience. I mean, when you're doing street theater, if they don't like it, they don't like you. If it's not funny, if it's not engaging, if they don't matter, they walk away. Yeah. So I really apply that to anything that I'm working on, any project, it's always the audience first. What is their experience? And man, if my main value as the audience ever was obvious, it's now. It's now. Because with the pandemic, when there's no audience, we, we don't matter. There's nothing happening. So I think this time, although it's tragic in many ways, of course, especially for health and loss of life and loss of jobs for so many of us in the themed entertainment industry, it's really an exciting time because I think as we come back, we're gonna have to come back with even more sophisticated ways for the audience to matter. Even, even more amazing experiences for them to be key in, not just observing, but to be participating in, I think is going to really be the trend of the future and, and what's really going to bring the audiences back.
0: Wow. I mean, I agree. I think it's such a pivotal point and so many things are changing that, I mean, it'll be really fascinating to see what comes about from all of this and, I mean, all over the creative industry.
1: Well, absolutely. And you know, stories are something that we just we can't live without. I mean, they're tribal, they're familial, you know. The storytelling is how we make sense of life and, and how we explain it. It's how we experience emotions together. I think that stories will be really important now, especially as we're, you know, I think with, with all that's happening with the social equity and the racial equity. We really have to be listening to all the voices. We have to be giving voice to the marginalized and and hear their stories. I think it's going to be really important and powerful as we move ahead the way that we can use stories to bring us together.
0: I 100% agree. When you are tasked with a new project, writing a new story, how do you approach it? What do you think about when you're trying to create an immersive storytelling experience?
1: Well, fortunately it's rarely in a vacuum. Usually it's with a team of people. So in, in most of the groups that I've worked with, especially Disney, there's a great understanding that a diversity of thought brings you, you know, the most luscious possibilities. And so usually a project will begin with a, um, a table full of people from different disciplines you know, talking about perhaps it might be a movie that's going to be put live or maybe it's a, a need for a festival or a celebration. So there will be a brainstorm, you know, where we will blue sky, which is a Disney term, you know, the most outrageous, anything can happen. We can, we can have any amount of money, any amount of possibilities. And so we, we go really big. And the reason for that is really powerful because when you can stretch to the limits of your creativity, then you can actually find the heart of the story and where it connects to the audience and what part of that story will work in a parade or in an attraction or in a water show or on a stage. It really begins with a lot of people. And then my job is initially often to encapsulate that and then begin to build the story arc. Because that's my whole focus, everyone on the team is also building the story from their discipline as well, but my role when I start to put pen to paper is really to see the story arc as it emerges so that we kind of know where are we headed and and what are we promising the audience and what do they take away, and what's the heart of the story and um I always say in the end if i've done my job well there'll be very little dialogue and a whole lot of rich story that's seen and felt smelled or touched or experienced each of those disciplines take away the need for language until there's the minimal language because when you're in a themed environment a theme park or a themed restaurant you have a short time it's not you don't have a 2 hour show on a broadway stage you have maybe 15 minutes of content because it's a theme park and you have a two-year-old and a 20-year-old and a 40-year-old and an 80-year-old. So um, you have to really be able to distill what's the heart, what's the promise to the audience, what's the takeaway, what about it is universal. So those are the questions I start asking immediately. In, In the first brainstorm and when I first put pen to paper to bring something back to the team to say, here's what I heard Am I hearing you? What do you think? And then then, then the cogs start going and then budgets start to get involved and ideas are exchanged. Like, well, we can do this instead of that. And then we adapt the story as we go.
0: So what would you say the most challenging part of that is? I
1: think the hardest thing sometimes is with smaller companies. They may not have as large a team. And, and that can be harder when I'm tasked with more of that, rather than having the input from so many people. I think one of the things that is considered fairly difficult that I actually love is um, when I worked at Disneyland Paris, because they have seven languages in their parks. And so you really have to minimize the dialogue. And I I think it has the potential to produce some of the best themed work, because you must rely on all the senses. And you can't rely on, you know, what I call the talking heads, you know, where you try and get away with moving a story by having someone talk. It's the least effective (laughs) way. So I find those experiences where you're constrained, where I'm constrained to actually be exciting. Sometimes you're given a situation where so much has already been determined. You know, you don't get to start in that blue sky moment, but you're handed, here's, here's the content, here's the place, here's the time of day, here's where you are. And, and they've gotten to a point where they're stuck. And so I've come in and, and then have to figure out how do we make all that make sense? And then kind of back into things so in that, in that space where I am in a situation where there's a lot of constraints, where a lot of things have already been determined, and I have to come in and kind of back my way into the story rather than from blue sky to the detail, um, I actually love that. Sometimes the confining creates the most creativity. The creative process is something that can be utterly trusted. And I I just find my, where do I insert? Where am I coming in at the creative process? And there really is almost no shortage of creativity. I will say I have worked once or twice with entertainment companies, not Disney, that have had leadership that's a browbeating style. That was a painful experience because I can be creative. You can ask for the moon and I'll give you a bucket of stars but if you stomp on my heart it's very hard for me to continue to create and come up with creative solutions so i would say difficult leadership that thinks they'll get more out of you by berating you that is really painful but for i am really blessed i've really only had one or two situations like that the rest of the time the people i've i've just been so blessed for 20 years to work with amazing people and amazing companies
0: yeah i mean it's much harder to be able to do anything when you sort of work under somebody like that
1: yeah it doesn't produce that creative spark (laughs) fortunately most creative companies know that and Mm -hmm. so that's a that's a, a big staple of their values and so i would say really that's the only time that it's really hard to work
0: yeah that makes perfect sense One of the projects you've also gotten to work on, aside from Disney, is being a show writer for a circus. How did that opportunity come about? That was interesting. You know, people will
1: call me, I think, because of writing for Disney, but they called me and they said, hey, do you want to write a circus? And I was like, well, uh, yes, Ringling (laughs) Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. It's the greatest show on earth. What do I do? And so I met with them and talked about some of the experiences that I'd had at Disney and they were like, all right, let's do it. And so then I kind of had to immerse myself in their world and, and what their, um, their structure was and, and who their audience was in order to, you know, really be able to write for them. And of course it's funny, like people say, well, how do you write a circus? (laughs) That's where some of this stuff we talked about a moment ago comes in because you're writing the whole experience. What's the pre-show? What happens? What are the clowns doing? What's the ringmaster going to say? What order are you going to put the stunt numbers in? And what's the through line through the whole thing? And again, it's not going to be a lot of talking, but it's going to be solidly there. Many, many pages of writing that again, everyone rallies around. And then I got to work with some of the acts more than others. Some of them were pretty self-contained. You know, there's not much I had to say about a motorcycle inside a cage, <laughs> <laughs> but there were other places that I affected, either the dialogue or the sketch. You know, the clowns I worked with were Italian, so we didn't even have the same language. Wow. But we had you know this, the same understanding of story and humor. Very different and really not so different, kind of all at once.
0: So you also worked as a writer for SeaWorld. I was brought in to create an
1: educational show for SeaWorld in San Diego, and it was really fascinating because I, I had to learn about the animals. I had to learn what they were up against, that what they were trying to do and helping people understand about killer whales and, and the whole point of having them in the shows to educate children. And this was, I think, in 2014. And my idea for the show was to have like the hosts of the show, not the animal trainers, but the hosts out in the big stands with iPads and taking children's questions. And we had children's drawings that would go up on the screen and like Q&A, different things like that. So in the end, it was a bit more the magic of as if the children were giving all those things a lot of it was pre-produced, but the sense that the audience was involved in the stories and the questions that were asked to the trainers and what the trainers had the whales do um, was really pretty innovative at the time, using the large screens as if we were throwing things up from the iPads and people's phones. So that was really it was really fun. I just looked at that not that long ago when I posted something on um, Instagram. And I was like, well, that was pretty cool back then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> was, it was neat. So it was really, it was a chance again where we were trying to connect the audience to the animals and to the conservation efforts of SeaWorld. And so that was really what that show was about. A little different than some of the ones that you see at night with all the flashing lights and, and the big music. It was a little more intimate of a show, but it was, it was really neat. I also worked on... Um, a show that had Bindi Irwin, if you remember Andy Irwin. Bindi Irwin is his daughter. And we did a show that was um, part webcast, part live, had screens. uh, Again, the same year. So pretty innovative for the time. And there was, um, the kids could interact in the show. And then there was stuff for them to do online, um, games and educational things and conservation efforts and join our efforts. The kids were called game changers. So that was really fun to work on that project also.
0: Wow. So how has working and incorporating technology affected what you do?
1: Oh, it's so exciting. We're always wanting to do more than it seems like we can actually get. (laughs) So I'm hoping that all of this that's happening now will really infiltrate even stronger People's ability to interact, you know, I think, you know, having the cue on your phone now, you know, the, the idea of, of setting up the wor- world building, you know, maybe on your phone while you're walking across the park before you even get to your time slot at the attraction or an ability just to interact with, with maybe how, it, how the story ends. I think it's really exciting. I mean, everybody's walking around with these little computers in their hand. So I think finding ways to incorporate that more and more is going to be the wave of the future for sure.
0: So when you're writing a show, how do you remain consistent across everything?
1: Well, I'm so immersed in the project that it has its own life and its own personality. I'm extremely intuitive. And I usually can only work on maybe three big projects at once because of of how intuitively I work. I prefer to work on one at a time, Um, but, you know, there's always your different stages. So I don't really have trouble with that. I I think I just hear the voice of the project so strongly, the music of it literally and figuratively. And again, always being guided by what are we promising and what are we giving the audience? I do read everything aloud constantly, whether it's a treatment or a script, I'm constantly doing it out loud because in, in, in the themed entertainment world, at least in my experience, it's not like, you know, regular uh, playwriting world where you will have, you know, you might have a dozen play readings or staged readings or, you know, launches of a script where you can bring it back and rewrite it and, have talkbacks with the cast and the audience, and you just don't usually have that in in the themed entertainment industry. There just isn't usually time for that, so um, i really I really do that kind of in my own
0: my own house,
1: my own living room.
0: Wow, I mean that is a really interesting tidbit for sure. I mean, I never would have thought, but it does make a lot of sense so along with being a show writer, you're also an author. You've published three books of fiction and poetry, it looks like four children's books, and over 30 magazine publications. How does writing books and poetry differ from writing shows?
1: Writing to be spoken and writing to be read are really different endeavors. And then the content of of some of my stories is, of course, very different than, you know, I've been told I'm Southern Gothic. In my, in, my, in my writing. So there's some tragedy and some, you know, humor and um, just a lot of dysfunction. So that, those things don't tend to come up in Disney stories. So the content is different, but you know, the, the truth of the matter is that strong nouns and strong verbs, strong attachment to the audience, um, strong emotional intelligence and intention is what drives all good writing, whether it's a children's story or a show or a, a book or a play or a short story. Um, it was around 2002, maybe, when I decided I had to stop performing and directing because I, I just needed to focus on the same skill set that I needed for the, you know, the money-making writing at Disney and for the writing of my literature, which is mostly for love. It does not make <laughs> much money. I, I decided I needed to just focus on the skill set of writing, which, like I said, in the end is strong nouns and strong verbs. So there, in that way, there's tremendous overlap. It's different also because the work that I do in themed entertainment is on assignment. They say, here's what we want. And then I deliver that and it comes through my heart and it comes through my integrity and it comes through my lens, but it has a definite um, goal that's determined, you know, at least in part by someone else, um, if not mostly. And then the work that I do when I write short stories, poems and um, books like that comes from what I want to tell. So I think that's probably the biggest difference there. I don't write, there are plenty of people who write books, um, you know, by a formula to, to please the audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't do that. That's what I do with my themed entertainment. So whatever I end up writing in the books is really what I want to talk about or, or create.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. Do you have a favorite project or book that you've ever worked on?
1: You know, that's just always the hardest thing Mm -hmm. to answer
0: because I'm all
1: I'm gonna say whatever the most recent fun thing was that I did Mm -hmm. because it's in my brain so fully but we did a um we did a private show for a very wealthy family where we took them to Santa's workshop and so we took a bank of ballrooms at Disney and we created um the North Pole in one room with a fountain that had a pole rising out of the middle of it. And a little um, six-year-old girl who'd been wearing the pixie dust, we sent all 40 members of the family in their invitation. She'd been wearing it around her neck. And so we had her tip her pixie dust into this North Pole fountain. And then every, the, the pole lit up and the room, spun with snow. And, and there was a kabuki drop that opened up to the opening of santa's castle and we went inside and there was a stage in the middle and four long tables that came out like spokes and the family sat down and the elves came in we had a cast of i don't know 20 some singing dancing and performing elves and they the night that the family came was the night that the first letters from santa arrived and so everyone was a a hubbub and so excited and then um, the family learned how to be elves, how to wrap presents, and it was just hilarious. We had them wrapping, you know, giraffe, stuffed giraffes and timed them. And, and then when it was time for the tree in Santa's workshop to light up, to shine out the window, to guide all the first letters to Santa's workshop, um, the tree went out. It stopped working. Of course, all along, there's been musical numbers, singing and dancing on the center stage and pulling the audience up and involving them but when the lights went out the the elves collected the whole family and gathered them around the tree and we sang this song that we had written for them about dreaming and wishing and believing and because the tree had gone out because of course not enough people believed that their letters to Santa meant anything. And so the family joined in with this song and the tree, of course, lit up and the star exploded with light out the big window. And then all of a sudden, the big machine over in the corner for the letters was filled with smoke and whistles and all the letters came streaming in. And Christmas was saved by this one family that believed. And then they took the letters, literally, and opened them and fulfilled them they went and got the toys from the cupboards and packed them in the sleigh and then we sent them off on their way
0: oh my goodness (laughs) it was quite it was quite magical when
1: when the very end when santa and the elves took everyone out back to the north pole fountain um, wishing fountain of course because it's disney and the family was gathered around the wishing fountain and and as santa thanked them all for saving christmas there were you know teenagers were arm in arm and the the patriarch of the family was just weeping and um then they just waved goodbye and then out the doors they went that just sounds like a movie it was it was better than a movie because it was wow. live they were inside there was a cuckoo that came out of the clock at uh, A performer dressed like a cuckoo who came out, who was all worried about whether or not, you know, the the time was going backwards instead of forwards. And and the cast was amazing, such amazing talent, Uh, singing and dancing and involving the audience and doing bits of improv. I gave them room, you know, my improv background. I gave them room to play within the characters that I gave them. And um, it was just really magical. The director was amazing. His name is Ken Malquist. And, and uh, we were definitely cohorts in the creation of that one.
0: Wow. That sounds probably like one of the most incredible experiences I've ever heard of. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> it is. We do get to do some pretty amazing things. It is. It is a, I am really blessed.
0: Coming off of that, do you have a favorite part about what you do? It really is seeing
1: the faces of the people as they experience it. And so often in in situations like that, I have to watch them later on film because uh, there's only limited number of people that can be there because they're actually in Santa's workshop. So the only people that they ever see are in Santa's workshop. So, but watching the faces of the families and the children in that sort of situation, or if it's in a park or a ship where I can see the audience, where I know that I've touched them, that I've been a part of that, 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 they, that their hearts have been stirred um, and I I take, it, I take it with great responsibility when when we do work especially at Disney but really anywhere where we, where we promise dreams and, and I take that very seriously because you, you can't promise a child that if they wish their parents won't get divorced or if they wish their grandmother won't die. So I, I take the responsibility of elevating the idea of, of dreams and hopes and, you know, faith and trust and pixie dust. I, I take that responsibility to heart and really try to make sure that, that the dream we offer to fulfill or the dream that we use to show, um, you know, if it's from a movie, the, the, the challenge that is overcome. I, re- I really try to make it something that people can really relate to and can really find a spot in their heart, where it will make a difference after they've seen the show or been in the experience. And I think that's probably my favorite part is, is how it touches the audience.
0: Wow. It's really, really awesome that you have the opportunity to interact with guests in that way and and bring stories to life for them. I think that's a really incredible opportunity.
1: Uh, It's, it's what drives me. And I would say, probably everyone on, on any of the teams that I've worked on. Um, most of the time, you really do have um, people working on experiences that really, really do want the audience to have that, have that emotional experience, that, um, that stepping inside the store. I mean, it's why Walt Disney built the theme parks to begin with. He, he wanted to create a place in which children and their families could step inside the magical world that they'd seen on a screen and themed entertainment was born
0: that's awesome and it's been really cool to be able to hear about about your experiences and how that all really comes to life so i do have a couple questions that i like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast If you could do any other profession other than your current one without having to worry about money or going to school or anything like that, what would you like to try? Visual art, painting. Oh,
1: I paint for fun and therapy Mm -hmm. at the moment. But um, yes, if I could just have lots of free time, I think I would love to create something that you can tangibly see. Everything I create goes away as soon as the show is over. Uh, Even a a video of a live performance does not do it justice. Um, So I think it would be fun. I would like that, to spend some time creating something that would stay, that would still touch the heart and still tell a story.
0: Wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the last question is, do you have any advice on... How to turn your passions into a career?
1: Yeah, I think you just dive in. I think you hop in the sixty-one VW bug and drive (laughs) to Florida for an audition and with one hundred fifty bucks in your pocket. I think you got to have a certain amount of moxie. That said, I think research, find out. Um, I was just talking to a young man who reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, "Well, how do I do this?" And I was like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And he wasn't quite sure and i was like well you need to find out what what you like doing what is it called you know ask people find out what what is that is there a position for that if so where and then once you find that you reach out network ask people i especially right now i find that so many people have such open hearts i mean people like me with 20 years experience i'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs so when I say reach out to me and ask me, I really mean it. And people often, I think, don't think that I do. So I'd say reach out and, and get to know um, what people's daily lives are like. So you go, oh, I don't want to do that at all. Or, oh, I love that idea. And then look for opportunities where you can do it, um, uh, you know, maybe for free. Not in a situation that would be paid, but maybe a smaller Theater company, or maybe a charitable company, or, or an event where you could where you could get some, you know, things for your resume. And then once you are actually trying to work in whatever world it is, at least the worlds that I've been in, you um, you pay attention, you listen carefully, you um, give them what they want a little bit more, a good bit better, faster if you can. Um, and you make them look good. You, you make them um, the stars, kind of like what I used to do with the people from the audience. And then, then you're someone that is fun to work with and, and can, can be intuitive and, and insightful. Um, listening is underrated. It's a really important part of finding your way into wherever you want to be. What I usually say to young writers anyway is, write it better, write it faster, and give them more than they thought.
0: That is really great advice, especially now. I think that's all extremely applicable.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, people are just so available, I guess. I mean, we're all in the same boat. I mean, I'm in the same boat that the young man who called me was in. So I think that's kind of across the board for a lot of people.
0: Well, Stacy, it was an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Stacy, links are in the description down below. If you like the show, please leave a rating, subscribe, and comment on whatever platform you listen on. It really helps out the show. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at The More Creative or on YouTube at More Creative Podcast. Again, thanks for listening and I hope to see you next time.